Hello, survivalists. This is the crux to survival stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. I'm thrilled to have you back for another gripping episode. Today, I am joined by the incredible Julie Henningsen. Hello, Julie Henningsen. Hi, Casey. Good to be here. In this episode, we'll take you deep into the heart of France, where the largest underground rescue operation in the country's history unfolded. Imagine being trapped underground for over a week, surrounded by turbulent floodwaters with only hope and the heroic efforts of rescue teams keeping you alive. We'll be diving into the extraordinary story of seven potholers or spoolunkers who found themselves in this perilous predicament in the vast cave complex near Grama, north of Toulouse in southeastern France. These individuals, aged 19 to 50, were known for their competence and experience, they were faced with an unimaginable challenge, survival in the darkness, cut off from the outside world. Join us as we explore the heroic efforts of the army, police cavers, and volunteers who fought against the odds, drilling through rock and navigating treacherous underground waters in a desperate attempt to rescue these trapped souls. It's a race against time, a battle against nature, and a testament to the human will for survival. So Casey, this sounds like a caver's nightmare and my nightmare too. Anytime you mix like caving, darkness, water, trapped, that is one of my worst nightmares. Is that the direction we're going here? That is absolutely the direction we are going here. All of it is terrifying. Yeah, I got chills just hearing about it. I'm gonna give you a little bit of a background to this cave system so you can have a picture in your head of what we're talking about here. Our story begins in the Viterelles Caverns, located in Gramat in southeastern France, which are a remarkable and extensive underground cave complex, which is renowned for their stunning geological formations and subterranean beauty. These caverns are nestled within the picturesque landscape of the Lot region, offering a captivating and mysterious world meets the Earth's surface. These caverns form a vast and intricate network of underground passages, chambers, and tunnels that wind their way beneath the surface of the earth. And these caverns have been formed over millions of years through geological processes involving the dissolution of limestone, which happens when water, which is more acidic, starts to break down some of those structures. Within the cave complex, visitors can marvel at a variety of breathtaking geological formations including stalactites, stalagmites, flowstones, and intricate calcite crystals. If you've never had the opportunity to see the inside of the cave, I would absolutely recommend that you do it. It is just such a magical and other earthly feeling. In Montana, we have the Lewis and Clark Caverns, which I remember the first time I went there, I was a small child, but I remember just being completely mind blown by the experience that I had in there. Have you ever done the Lewis and Clark Caverns before, Julie? Yeah, I have, Casey. And I, the first time I did it, I wasn't a kid. I was, you know, probably in my early twenties and same thing, mind blown with that. And then maybe a decade after that, we lived right by there. So every time somebody came to visit us, we would go, we would take them to the Lewis and Clark Caverns. So I think like one summer we might've gone there four or five times to the point that we knew all the goofy jokes that the tour guides would tell. And we knew what all the silly names of the rock formations. Um, But walking through the caverns, 
really never got old. It's such an amazing, unexpected world um, if you've not experienced it. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is so fascinating about it is how much cooler it is down there. It's just an interesting experience to be in a cave. The other thing that came up in some of my readings about caverns is the fact that most of the mountains worth climbing have been climbed, right? Most of the places that we can explore on earth have been explored with the exception of caverns. This is a whole new world for explorers that, you know, really we've probably just hit the tip of the iceberg on terms of the caverns and exploration that could be done. I think what's most limiting is just how do you access these places and how do you get out? And how do you keep from getting lost? That's always a impressive um, feat just with how winding and kind of maze like and confusing, disorienting it can be. Absolutely. The Vitarell's caverns Despite the absence of natural life, the cave environment supports a unique and delicate ecosystem of cave-adapted species like insects and bats. And like I mentioned before, the cave complex has attracted explorers, scientists, and cave enthusiasts from around the world who have come to study its geological features, hydrology, and biology. And the exploration of this network of caverns contributed to our understanding of cave systems and Earth's geological history. The passages were originally explored by a French underwater explorer, Jacques Cousteau. So who knew? Who knew? Yeah, that's a name we've all heard. Yeah, for sure. The cave systems are complex. And like we mentioned before, navigating these caves takes expertise. And in some areas, these cave passages are up to 400 feet underground. The explorers in our story are between the ages of 19 and 55. The men were experienced. It's not like they just decided to do this on a whim. They've been planning this for months beforehand. They planned a three-day excursion and they brought plenty of food and rafts, which is a weird thought to be rafting underground. There's only one entrance and this entrance is through a 40 meter well that connects to an underground river. So it starts out, I know, isn't that a crazy thought? Yeah, I just can't imagine being like, all right, let's go down this well. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, I know I can imagine it, but for me personally, it would be, it would feel kind of terrifying. You know what? I would like to go down and then come right back up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. I want to see what it's like for a moment. So in any case, there's just this one entrance. And when you get into the cave, there's a little bit of water and then the water deepens into a river. The plan was to follow the river and explore some areas that hadn't been explored in 15 to 20 years. So they went down on November 11th and by November 13th, the weather above had changed and the area was hit by violent storms. And these storms brought heavy rainfall, 66 millimeters in 12 hours and severe weather conditions that extended to the area surrounding the cave. As a consequence of the heavy rainfall, the water levels in the underground river within the cave complex started to rise rapidly. And caves are highly susceptible to flooding during heavy rain events because the water from the surface can easily penetrate the ground and enter the cave system through sinkholes and fissures. Caught by surprise and unable to predict the sudden rise of the underground river, these explorers found themselves trapped within the cave system, 330 feet underground in an arching chamber The swiftly rising waters had blocked their only exit. The water rose to the point where they were about 1.5 meters from the ceiling of this cavern. They were all in life rafts and they could just see 
the ceiling inching closer to them as the water was rising. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. I know, right? You can imagine the fear you must feel when you think, this is how my life ends. I'm going to be smashed up against this rock and then drown. But the other thing too is that there's not very much airspace and they had lamps that required flammable gas, which increases the CO2 in the space. So this Mm. is in 1999, and I thought it was interesting that they were using still flammable gas in headlamps, but that's what they were using. Yeah, that's interesting. You'd think they'd just have good old-fashioned battery-powered Petzl headlamps. Yeah, unless it was maybe part of the appeal to do something like the cavers Mm. had done for generations before. I don't, I'm not sure. I didn't find anything about that, but you know, of course it's creating CO2 along with their breathing. And then they have increased risk of asphyxiation, you know, because with too much CO2, you get respiratory depression followed by coma and death, which is also a really pleasant way to go. Right. Yeah. They wanted to conserve the fuel in their headlamps because they were thinking that in the event that the water level came down, they would be able to navigate them their way out of the cave. So intermittently, they were turning off their lamps. I wonder if maybe one at a time. Um, do you have um, an idea of how long they planned to be down there when they set out? Were they going for a multi-day adventure? They were planning on a three-day trip. Gotcha. You might have said that. So only enough food for three days and maybe a little extra, but not a whole lot. One of the cavers had an altimeter and he was checking the pressure in the cave. And they knew that if the cave pressure stayed pretty stable, that they wouldn't be increasing the volume of water in the cave too much or losing too much of the volume. So not to say that that was really helpful for them to know, but maybe it gave them a little bit of peace of mind. Or it was something they could like preoccupy themselves with as a metric to kind of get a little sliver of hope. Right. So as previously mentioned, this was the largest underground rescue operation ever conducted in France. And it involved more than 180 people, including army and police, cavers, amateur and professional potholers, spelunkers, and soldiers. Uh, This demonstrated the gravity of the situation and the need for substantial rescue effort. Two cave rescue experts, Bernard Tort and Guy Beriv- I cannot say that Beriviera. Guy Beriviera led the rescue mission. Their goal was to find the trap potholers as quickly as possible, but with the understanding of the complexities of the caves, they knew that they would need to approach the rescue with a methodical but patient mindset. On day three, as the men are sitting in the cave feeling abandoned and worried and wet and cold, there was a sudden gush of water out of the cave and the water level dropped suddenly and violently. As a result of the water level dropping, the men found themselves on a three meter ledge. They felt like they were in a plastic water bottle that was shaken up. It was such mm. an odd feeling as the pressure in the chamber changed and the water that was left inside of that chamber was just swishing around violently. And that was a little bit unsettling to them, of course, as you can imagine. You're just sitting there and all of a sudden it was like the water plug was just pulled. Huh. Yeah. I wonder what the deal was with that. Something broke loose and it drew somewhere else. Ah, Yeah. Some debris within the cave itself had broken and allowed the release of the water from that section. This time they figured it would take three more days for the water to drop enough God willing, if the weather didn't change, that they would be able to navigate out of the cave system. They took the time on the surface 
to sit and stand and organize their gear, ration their food and water. They had tablets to sanitize the water and they collected them some water from stalactites, but they were also able to boil that water for tea and keep themselves warm. So were they just like hanging out in this raft on the water or once it drained a bit, were they now on solid ground? They're on solid ground now. Yeah, they got out of those rafts as quickly as they possibly could when they had the opportunity. And the last thing that any of them wanted to do was get back in one of those rafts. Up above, Guy and Bernard were able to access the cave system since the water had dropped somewhat because remember there's only one access point. They brought in an inflatable kayak and a bunch of climbing gear and they had enough headway to navigate the river, but it was challenging. Excuse me, there was turbulent rapids and water movement, which moves as gravity would, and they're going downward through the cave. After five hours, they were at the end of the accessible river, and they had to climb to the summit at the end of the gallery, and then there's a rock formation that they have to climb up to get into the next section of cave, and that took five hours. And meanwhile, they're pulling all of their equipment with them. Yeah, including that kayak, I'm guessing. Exactly. So once they reached the next gallery, they realized that the spelunkers slash potholers were not in it, which made them concerned because this, there was a film on the roof that indicated the water level had completely reached the ceiling in that gallery. And also what was concerning is that this is the cave that had the greatest elevation. So it seemed like the most likely that you would survive if you were in that spot. And of course they had not had any communication with the cavers to know whether or not they were still alive. So they recognizing that the cave with the highest altitude was full of water at one point. So certainly every other spot, hiding spot was probably as well, probably lost hope that they were survivors. I think that they were very concerned, but at the same time they knew where the cavers were not. And so at that point, Of course, they've been underground for 10 hours or more. They decided to leave the cave and come up with a new set of plans. To reach the trap potholers, rescuers initiated a drilling operation because that was the only way to get into the other spaces. Since it's such an intricate and vast network, you know, it might seem straightforward. It's essentially a river underground with small caves intermixed, but you're just guessing really at this point as to where these men were. It reminds me of the Chilean mining accident that we talked about at one point on this podcast with the drilling, that just kind of trial and error drilling, hoping you find something. Yes, that was certainly a really big story. So one team worked on drilling a man-sized hole from the surface through approximately 130 feet of rock, aiming to access the chamber where they thought the potholers may have taken refuge. Another team drilled another smaller hole three miles into the complex. They were thinking about lowering a microphone down into this smaller hole to listen for signs of life. The rescue operation was a well-coordinated effort with different teams working in tandem. The presence of both the amateur and professional potholers, along with the volunteers and other technicians, allowed for a diverse range of skills and expertise to be deployed during the rescue. I mean, some of the stuff that they were doing was surprising to me, like measuring how the water was moving in the side of the cavern or the air temperature and things like that. There was a whole level of science that was going into it. Despite facing steady rain, which could have exacerbated the flooding, the rescue teams just kept on. The drilling operation, again, was a beacon of hope because without the drills, it would be very difficult to continue with the difficult weather conditions. 
but it was fraught with risks and complexities. And they worked around the clock. They were drilling through rock to reach these chambers and they were facing problems like the rock hardness and the uneven rock structures. Cave rescue is not your typical wilderness rescue because it's a unique blend of borrowed elements for firefighting, confined space rescue, rope rescue, mountaineering skills. Combined with its own set of specialized skills tailored to manage this type of environment. And also it demands a high level of organized teamwork and clear communication, which was probably similar to wildland firefighting. The rescuers have to adapt to the extremes in the cave environment where air temperature, water, and vertical depth dictate every move. Obviously it's a very slow and deliberate process that requires precision and skill. And these cave experts are not typically your regular emergency staff. They're experienced cavers who undergo rigorous training through organizations and they're called upon when needed, of course. In the US, organized cave rescue units are often volunteer squads composed mainly of seasoned local cavers. Due to the manpower required for large scale cave rescues, it's common for multiple cave rescue units from different regions to come together to assist in extensive underground operations. They extend their reach far beyond their normally responsible areas to help when it's needed the most. The number of cave rescues in North America is relatively small compared to other wilderness rescues and with about 40 to 50 cases per year. About 10% of these incidents result in fatalities. To ensure effective coordination, organized cave rescue teams utilize incident command systems originally for wildland fire teams. They provide a structured framework that can be adapted to meet unique challenges of cave rescues. So just one thing to keep in mind, I mean, it's like an organized system, lots of planning. It's very systematic. It's not just a big free for all game of hide and seek. You go right. this way, I'll go that way. Yeah, and I'm sure you're also trying to figure out who has the most experience and knowledge of the area. Yeah, I bet there's a lot of personality dynamics that come into play with that as well, since it is such a specialized, almost elite skill. I'm sure. By day six, the men are starting to lose hope. They had very little food rations left. They had very little fuel left for their lamps. They are wet. They're worried. And at this point, their main focus is just not becoming hypothermic or dehydrated since they were running out of sanitizing tablets. Above, the rain, again, started to come down heavily but the rescue efforts were still in full force. By day seven, there's a huge media frenzy, which made the rescue efforts more difficult. The rescue crews had to take care about the words that they were saying because these conversations were being listened to by the media. They're using radios and whatnot. So they're worried that information is gonna get leaked to the public. And what they really didn't want was information about well, in the event that they found these potholers and they had deceased, they didn't want the media to catch wind of that before they were able to notify the families that were involved. One thing that was really cool is that all of the people within the group that were missing, they were all close. They, their families knew one another and all of the families of the members that were trapped were helping assist the rescue team by bringing them food by bringing them hot coffee, by supporting them in any way they could. And you said the these trapped cavers or potholers, which I like better than caver, um, they were all men. It was a group of men. Any mm -hmm. women? Yeah. No women. I found a side note 
that I found really interesting as I was reading for this. And this is about a French geologist, Michael Siffrey, and what he discovered about the human perception of time when living in isolation deep within a cave. This was something he was interested in. And there is a book written by New York writer Alan Burdick Michael called Why Time Flies. And it discusses Sifri and his findings. But Sifri embarked on a remarkable journey to the depths of a cave in 1962. And he planned to remain underground for two months. But when he emerged, it was 25 days later than he had anticipated. Oh, wow. So he was not, he didn't bring like a watch or any kind of timekeeping. Oh, that's amazing. Now, and the whole point of his experiment was to see how psychologically he would fare, but he wouldn't allow anyone to tell him what time of day it was. There was a hole that was drilled through the cave that he was in, and he had phone communication with the people above, but he didn't want them to say anything that would have indicated the time of day. So he was completely out of touch. He would go prolonged periods of time without sleeping or sometimes sleep a lot more than you would normally anticipate, and there was nothing to indicate sleep-wake times based upon the light. So he had a tent, a sleeping bag, and a cot, and he had a small generator-powered lamp for light. And he spent time writing and reading Plato and pondering his future. It's just really interesting how his time was all warped, and he did this a couple different times. Um, So anyway, it's pretty interesting because before we thought that the circadian rhythm was based on a 24-hour cycle and it's against that but the whole thing too is that maybe your circadian rhythm is largely driven by light natural light and that could just totally scramble your brain's appreciation for time of day yeah i think there is some something to that especially with i think it's called shift workers syndrome where they're the daylight is sending a different message about when it's time to sleep and when it's time to work um, and it can really mess with your brain function Right. And this individual, he had problems with memory and doing regular small tasks as well as eyesight from being in this cave for so long. But I just thought that was really interesting because I was wondering about how time was passing for these people that were stuck underground. I'm sure that it all sort of blended together at some point, which is a blessing in a lot of ways. All the studies that, that Sifri did, he was underestimating the amount of time as opposed to overestimating. You'd think it would be the other way. You'd think that an hour would feel like a day would feel like a week. Well, especially because during his whole experiment, he was constantly having wet feet and just, you know, uncomfortable physically. So you would think that that would also prolong your sensation of time. Yeah. As the hours turn into days and the days turn into an agonizing long week, the pressing issue of time weighed heavily on the rescue efforts. Every second that passed was crucial, and countdown to potential disaster was relentless. The rescuers knew they had to act swiftly, but they also understood the importance of being cautious. Because the other thing is that the rain is continuing, and you don't want to send a rescue crew in there that's also going to get trapped. Right. Seeing safety. You're number one. Finally, the drill penetrated the depth of the cavern, and our rescue heroes, Guy and Bernard, went in again. They were finally able to find the river by navigating through a cave network and they that they got into from where the drill had penetrated. After hours of navigating, they were not able to make contact with the survivors, but they knew they were on the right path. They were headed towards another cave where they had the greatest likelihood of finding the survivors. 
The clock ticked relentlessly in the underground chambers of the caverns. They tried to detect any signs of life, and intently their ears strained for faint echoes of life within the chambers, but they didn't hear anything. So they decided they needed to go back out and get another crew. So they get back up to the surface and send a crew of four men in through a man-sized hole. They follow the same path that the earlier men had followed to the river, and they carried on up towards that next cavern. Meanwhile, in our cave where our survivors are waiting, they hear yelling and they start yelling back. And within a few agonizing minutes, the potholers were face to face with the four rescuers. They are elated and full of joy. They've probably never been happier in all of their lives. One of the potholers offered a rescuer a piece of stale cake they've been saving as a token of appreciation. That's impressive. They kept their stale cake for a full week. I think I would have eaten it on about day four, day five. I wondered if those drivers heard the drilling, because I'm sure that's got to be loud underground. So hopefully they had some indications you know, before they were actually face-to-face with their rescuers that help was on the way. I don't think they heard a thing. They heard water, and that was about it. There's one mention that earlier on, they thought they heard voices and then realized that it was all in their heads. Um, at least that's the impression that I got, that there wasn't a lot of sound penetration. The people that were waiting were just waiting, and they were obviously hopeful that someone was coming for them, but there was no guarantee. Yeah. The first glimmer of salvation to all of the rescuers and the family members was when Kola Wildland emerged from the darkness. He walked unaided to a nearby ambulance, exhausted and grime clinging to him, but his face radiated pure joy. One by one, the others followed surfacing at intervals of about 20 minutes apart. The tension that had gripped the rescuers and the world outside the cave began to ease as the explorers returned to the surface. Rescuer Jean-Francois Goddard, overwhelmed with relief, shared the moment with the French television saying, it's an enormous relief, we are extremely happy. All the potholers were pronounced to be in good health, a testament to their resilience in the face of adversity. Lieutenant Pierre Maisonneuve, the spokesman for the largest rescue mission of its kind in France, praised the groups with relentlessness in rationing their limited food and light during their ordeal. What's interesting is this Nicola, who is the youngest, he was 19, he trained to become a cave rescuer after this, as did a couple of the other members that were stuck down there. That's impressive that not only were they willing to go back down, but that they were excited to get that kind of training and those skills. Although it makes sense, pay it forward. What's interesting is that the military blocked off the cave's entrance, so no one can go caving down in that area again. Although Nicola hopes that he'll be able to go back, find another entrance at some point and explore those caves again, which every time I hear these stories, I wonder why you would want to go back in there, but can't stop those potholers. Just knowing how precious life is when you're experiencing something like that, the gravity of the situation, I can imagine you would never look at any day the same when you're waking up in your bed. Yeah, that feeling that every day is just a gift. That's the silver lining in a lot of these stories that we tell. It's so true. I think it's just a good point to remember when we're going through experiences that we think are difficult, just to remember that most of the things that we think are concerning really are not. Yeah, it gives us good perspective. It's a nice reminder to think about these experiences that hopefully we never have firsthand. 
Right. Some gratitude, some good gratitude. I do enjoy thinking about it secondhand, but I don't really want to be stuck in a cave for 10 days. Agreed. As we reach the conclusion of this gripping episode, we want to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you that listens in every week. Seriously, it is so appreciated. Every time I read any comments from any of you, so heartwarming and just makes me want to continue doing this. So I really appreciate it. If you've been enjoying these tales of survival and resilience, we kindly ask for your support in return. So if you would please take a moment to rate and review the Crux True Survival Stories on your preferred podcast platform, that would make a world of difference in helping us reach more listeners. Don't forget to connect with us on Instagram where we share behind the scenes insights, updates, and some visuals related to the stories we're covering. Sharing our posts on your stories is a great way to spread the word about our podcast. So that's an awesome way to get the word out and the power of word of mouth cannot be underestimated. So we really appreciate you sharing with your friends or family members, anyone who might find inspiration from these incredible survival tales. So if you have any feedback, suggestions, or your own real survival story to share, we would really love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the Crux Podcast. So once again, thank you for being a part of our community and for joining us on this journey through the most remarkable true survival stories. Stay tuned for more incredible narratives of human triumph over adversity on the Crux True Survival Stories. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious, never stop exploring. Have a wonderful week. Bye, Julie. Thanks for this story today, Casey. It was a good one. Have a great week. I'm glad you enjoyed it.